Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. How many times have we heard the phrase big oil, when sometimes what we really mean is authoritarian oil? Because there seems to be a direct and long-standing historical nexus between those nations that have high-in-demand natural resources like oil or even diamonds, and countries which have corrupt, brutal, and inept economies. Our increasing demand for these resources, including oil and the all-new resources needed by technology, are helping to support tyrants around the world. Think about just today's crises. ISIS, Syria, Darfur, and the Ukraine all have at their root oil and natural resources. This is the world we're going to explore today with my guest, Leif Winar. He is Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. He earned his degrees in philosophy from Stanford and Harvard. He's been a visiting professor at Princeton and a fellow at the Carnegie Council Program in Justice in the World Economy. He will soon be the William H. Bonzol Visiting Professor at Stanford, and he's the author of a new book entitled Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. It is my pleasure to welcome Leif Winar to Radio Who, What, Why. Leif, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things that we see over and over again is that there seems to be this link between countries that have a lot of natural resources, oil in particular, and countries that have the worst political systems, the worst economies, the most corrupt economies, and are plagued by civil war. Why does this seem to happen over and over again? You're absolutely right, Jeff, and your introduction was just perfect. I mean, think about the countries that have given us our worst foreign policy crises and threats in our lifetimes. Think about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Syria, Putin, Gaddafi, Saddam, Darfur, Iran, even all the way back to the Soviet Union. Our worst crises and threats have been coming from just these countries that have one thing in common. They have a lot of oil. In these countries, violent and repressive men are selling off the country's oil to pay for their armies and their guns and the spread of their ideologies. Where does their money come from? Well, ultimately, of course, it comes from us. It comes from us consumers. When we buy gas or what's transported with gas, which is basically almost everything, And so that means when we fill up, we may be sending money to people who regard us as enemies, or when we pay at the checkout, we may be sending our cash to places where there's tremendous suffering and injustice. Right now, we consumers are in business with these men of blood overseas, and they've been causing an awful lot of trouble with our money. And that raises this deep question. Why is this happening? Why are we legally in business with these men of blood overseas? Why do we give them our money in exchange for the oil of their countries? Why, though, do we see this happening over and over again? Is it simply a matter of it is too easy for these countries that the money rolls in too rapidly? I mean, it's a little bit analogous to somebody that doesn't have a lot of money and wins the lottery and their life is turned upside down and ruined by their winnings. Is that what we're seeing happen on a global geopolitical basis? That is definitely part of the story. Oil money is very easy money. 
and when it's poured into the top of uh, government, the people in the government can use that money in whatever the way they want to with little accountability from the people. So they can spend it on palaces or champagne if they want to, and more often they spend it on coercion and buying loyalty from people who keep them safe. But there's actually a deeper explanation to why that money is going to these men in the first place. And that explanation has to do with a very old and very bad law that we all take for granted, but which is causing all this trouble and which we really now have to change. That law says that we can legally buy oil from whoever can control it by force in a foreign country. Our law says might makes right. And let me give you an example. I mean, when Colonel Gaddafi seized control of Libya all those years ago, well, we got the legal right to buy Libya's oil from him. And then later, when rebels seized those same oil wells from Gaddafi, our law gave us the legal right to buy Libya's oil from the rebels. Basically, our law gives us the legal right to buy oil from whoever has the most guns. Our law says might there will make legal rights here, and actually so does the law of every country in the world. Every country's law for foreign natural resources is whoever can seize it by force can sell it to us. And that's why so much of our money ends up going back to these countries, to violent and repressive men. In a world today where natural resources, the demand for natural resources is so competitive, though, don't we really face a situation where if we don't buy the resource, be it oil, diamonds, or or anything else for that matter, if we don't buy it, somebody else will? That's true. Oil is fungible, and it will go where people are willing to buy it. Oil is now causing so much trouble that we should stop buying it in America, and we should lead the West and then the world to stop buying oil from any authoritarian regime or armed group. We really have to repeal this bad old law that makes right, and we've got to convince the rest of the world to do it too. Now that's a big ask, and there's going to be a lot of challenges, but we can do it if we want to. The problems that oil is causing now are great, and the problems are just going to get worse as the people of resource-rich countries get more and more dissatisfied with the wars and the governments they've been subjected to, and as the oil-producing regions get hotter and hungrier and thirstier and more crowded and so more unstable. And as the demand for dollars increases in these countries, what is the impact, as you see it, the impact going forward of watching oil as we have over the past several months go from $100 a barrel to yesterday below $30 a barrel for the first time? You know, just it's so interesting. When I started this project that says that we have to stop buying authoritarian oil, people thought it was impossible. And now with oil prices so far down, people think that North America might be energy independent even without legal reforms. We have so much of our own oil now that we don't need authoritarian oil. And the authoritarians in these big oil producing countries seem to be in real 
trouble. I don't know if you saw the story, but even Saudi Arabia, the biggest oil state of them all, is thinking about putting its national oil company up for an IPO. It's thinking about putting its national oil company up on the stock market just so it can get some more money. If Saudi is having that kind of trouble, it may be that all of these regimes are really going to get shakier and shakier, and that means the people will have a chance to get power. I think we should be on the side of the people when they get power in these countries instead of continuing our business with the men who are now repressing them. What danger does that set up in terms of seeing some of these repressive regimes possibly fall, even more of them fall, if in fact the price of oil continues to plummet and nations around the world, particularly in the West, were to do the kind of things that you're talking about, the net impact of that in these countries arguably might be more positive in the long run, but seems like they'd be a lot more dangerous in the short run. Yeah, this is a really serious question. We have two alternatives. One is to continue our current rule of might makes right and continue to send all of these dollars to whoever in these countries has the most guns and can keep control of the oil wells. Or we can say that the people of the country have the ultimate right to control the oil of the country and we're not going to buy from any authoritarian and armed group unless they unless the people there can really get the consent of the citizens to sell the oil off. Those are all alternatives, and both of them have risks. If we keep sending our money to authoritarians and armed groups, there may be a continuation, even an escalation of the instability in the Middle East that we're seeing right now. The alternative is to taper off our imports from these countries of oil and try to let the air out of the balloon so there can be gradual constitutional reform in these countries so that we can signal that we are on the side of the reformers in these countries who want to give power to the people to control their natural resources instead of letting anyone who has the most guns sell off the oil of their countries. Talk a little bit about examples, and really Africa seems to be the only place one might find them, where there are countries that have been rich in resources, that have had corrupt regimes, and that have moved slowly but surely to a to a less authoritarian and more, I won't say democratic, but moving in the democratic direction. You know, there are examples of countries that are oil-rich that have democratized. It's unusual. Almost no country where the government gets most of its money from oil has ever become democratic. But there are countries that have started to become democratic once the oil money runs out. So if you look like a, if you look at a country like Nigeria in Africa or Indonesia or even Mexico, these countries have a lot of oil. But when the oil money per capita started to go down, that's when you started to see a democratic transition taking place. And that's what we see actually in the biggest African country of all, Nigeria. It's still a very corrupt, violent, disordered place. But there's hope. The government seems to be getting better, and they seem to be trying to get themselves off of the oil that's been causing them so much trouble for so many years. Coming back to the broader issue, one of the things that you talk about is essentially this resource curse, which is really at the core of everything we've been talking about. 
That's right. There is a resource curse. And let me just give you one statistic that sums it up. The oil states in the developing world are real exceptions to all of the success stories in the rest of the developing world. The oil states are no richer, no freer, and no more peaceful today than they were in 1980. And that's amazing. Think of all that wealth in those countries. No richer, no freer, and no more peaceful. In contrast, states that don't have oil, China and India, great success stories in the developing world. Just mentioned Nigeria. It's a remarkable fact. Nigeria now has the most poor people in the world, the most dollar-a-day poverty in the world, more than the gigantic country of China, more than the gigantic country of India. There's something about oil that keeps countries growing slower than they should, makes them more prone to authoritarianism and civil war and corruption. That's the resource curse. You mentioned China a moment ago. Talk a little bit about China and its insatiable demand for natural resources of all kinds, including oil, and the fact that it has been so aggressive, particularly in Africa, with respect to uh, getting these resources. Yeah, that's right. China has certainly made a big a big play in Africa for resources. My own view is that China has done some good in Africa in building infrastructure in exchange for natural resources, but it's also been very unfortunate in buying resources from authoritarian regimes that we have had a lot of trouble with, for example, from Sudan, uh, from Zimbabwe. The Chinese still buy a lot of oil from authoritarians, and that's causing a lot of trouble. So the Chinese do need these resources, and we are going to have to convince China that the resource curse presents problems that the U.S. and China have in common. Like I said, there's a tremendous instability in oil producing countries. Think about where the oil of the world is. Think about this arc of oil that runs from Russia through the Middle East to North Africa with Libya and then Nigeria. That arc of oil is increasingly unstable. If China depends for its primary energy supply on oil from these countries, it's really going to have problems with its growth going forward. So we need to convince the Chinese and the Indians and other major importing countries that authoritarian oil is bad for all of us. And if we work together, we can make a transition to a better global system for oil trade. How have we seen this curse, this resource curse, evolve over the past 20 years, 25 years, as globalization and international trade has become more a part of the world economy? We see the resource curse getting worse as globalization intensifies, as resource use intensifies. We have seen the resource curse phenomena intensify also. So take the resource curse of authoritarianism. As I mentioned before, oil states in the developing world are half again as likely to be authoritarian. Oil is autocratizing. Oil gives a lot of money 
to authoritarians in charge of their country. So in the last 20 years, you can just think, the more money that a Putin or a Chavez had from the oil, the less that he needed to worry about the freedom of his citizens or the health of the economy, even of the opinions of the international community. Oil makes authoritarians stronger, and the more demand there is for oil, the richer the authoritarians will become. What do we learn by looking at Mexico and Norway and even Botswana? Norway and Botswana are great success stories with their natural resources. They've never had the resource curse, and that is remarkable, because Norway has a lot of oil, and Botswana is the world's largest supplier of diamonds. Why is that true? There's one crucial fact. The crucial fact is that when Norway, for example, got its oil, the people were already in control of their government. The government was already accountable to the people, so the people made the oil money work for their good instead of for the good of their leaders. So Norway, the people had control over their government through free elections and an independent press and civil society, and that's why Norway has done so well with its oil money, because the government was already accountable to the people. The key to ending the resource curse is to give the people the power to hold their government accountable for resource decisions. And we shouldn't be buying oil from any country where the people can't hold their government to account with their oil. You make the analogy in, in blood oil to even the Atlantic slave trade. Talk about that. You know, the Atlantic slave trade is one of the most inspiring examples, and it really points to what we can do now. So in London, where I work, in 1787, 12 Quakers got together and made an absolutely preposterous promise to each other that they would end the Atlantic slave trade. Now that promise was preposterous in 1787 because Britain was the superpower of the day and the elites were heavily entrenched in the slave trade that was making them rich. So the slave trade gave Britain its first millionaire. The mayor of London had large plantations. Even the Church of England owned vast tracts in uh, the Caribbean and was making a lot of money off of slavery, as were Barclay and Lloyd's Bank. The people of Britain especially the women of the North actually, just insisted year after year, decade after decade, that their government get them out of business with slavery and the slave trade. So the people boycotted and voted and petitioned and they marched. They just insisted that the slave trade must be ended. In their day, the boycott was of slave-grown sugar. In our day, the boycott should be of blood oil. In both cases, the transitions will be big, they will cost us some money, but the transition in the slave trade was, at the end of the day, worth the money that the British spent, just as the transition for us will be worth it when we get off of blood oil. It's the right thing to do, and it'll also make us more secure at the end of the day. I talk about that because there's, there's two parts of it. There's the degree to which it makes us more secure, certainly. There's also the part 
with respect to the economy, how it impacts the economy, how it impacts the global economy. Certainly from a moral point of view, from an ethical point of view, it's hard to argue that it's the right thing to do. How is it a win-win in ways that it is both good for the economy and good for geopolitics? It is going to be good for the economy when you look at things like price stability. So almost every U.S. recession has been preceded by an oil price spike, including this last very bad recession that we've just gone through. And it's not just the U.S. Four out of the five last global recessions have been preceded by a large spike in the price of oil. Oil is more volatile in its price than 90% of the goods sold in the United States. It has price swings of 25% every year. The volatility of oil really causes the world economy a lot of trouble. As you can see right now, as you mentioned before, we've seen a just huge drop in the price of oil. And you can see all of these countries scrambling to try to adjust themselves. Part of the volatility of oil is the instability that comes from the conflict in these oil-producing states. When we get a more stable basis for global oil trade, the global economy will run more smoothly. And let me just say something else about that, too. One problem that we face in sorting out international economic affairs is that our international agenda is so overloaded with these other problems that the resource curse keeps giving us. So what should the world do about Syria? Now, what should the world do about Libya a couple of years ago? These are problems that cause a lot of friction between us and the other major players in the international affairs. If we can clear the international agenda of some of these crises that keep coming to us from resource-cursed states, there'll be a lot more room on the agenda for us to make progress on things like global trade. One of the things you talk about with respect to trade is this idea of clean trade. Tell us a little about what that is. Clean trade is the name I've given for this campaign that we as citizens can engage in to convince our government to get us out of business with authoritarians and armed groups abroad who are selling off their natural resources without the consent of the people of the country. Our country should go clean trade. That just means we should pass a law that says we will no longer import natural resources from these countries. And we should spread those laws as far as we can to other countries by convincing our partners to pass similar laws so we can all coordinate on that. The main law is just this law that would say no more blood oil. And we're also going to stop buying conflict minerals, too. So clean trade is just the banner uh, that this campaign is going on to. And I'm pleased to say tomorrow the clean trade site will be launched. If people want to get involved, there's lots of things that they can do. There's a declaration of principles that they can sign. Uh, I'm trying to convince our government to get out of business with these bad actors abroad. We're going to have an index of which major oil companies do more business with authoritarian regimes. So drivers can choose where to buy gas depending on which companies are giving more money to dictators abroad. We can do boycotts on Chinese goods until the Chinese also decide to stop importing stolen oil. There's lots of things that ordinary people can do to stop the trade 
in stolen oil coming into this country and other countries as well. Where do the oil companies, the big oil companies, stand in all of this? Big oil is in business to get oil. So they want to get oil wherever it is. As you know, they have no problem doing business with authoritarian regimes, and they have no problem actually working in all but the most chaotic countries. So big oil is getting the oil that we are demanding, and they have no problems doing business with whoever they can. But actually, big oil has an interest in getting behind clean trade as well. If you talk to an oil man at some point, you have to just ask him, how much money has he made in Iran, for example, since 1979? How does he feel about his investments in the chaos of Libya today? How much money has he made in Sudan since sanctions went in? Even Iraq, how is he feeling about Iraq in the medium term? These are big oil-producing countries where big oil is having a lot of trouble getting any business at all. With a clean trade, the world will be put on a more stable basis for getting oil out of the ground, and that means big oil could do its business more safely, too. One of the other things that, that we see going on today is that the resource demand goes beyond oil. The technology today has created demands for all sorts of natural resources that come from countries that are in similar situations as some of these countries that are dealing with oil resources. That's right. So let me go back to that bad old rule of my next right, which we should change. If you pick up your cell phone or your laptop, you may be holding something that contains metals that were extracted at gunpoint by one of these awful militias in the terrible civil war in the Congo. Now those metals in your phone or laptop were extracted at gunpoint by a violent group abroad, but by the time they get to you, well, you buy them and you own them 100% legally, free and clear, according to the laws of the United States. Again, might there turns into the legal right here. And that's what sends our dollars back to those militias in the Congo and allows them to buy more bullets and more bayonets. It's not just oil. We really are in legal business with the men of blood abroad. And that's the business we've got to change. Lee Fuenar, his book is Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. Leif, I thank you so much for spending time with us today on Radio Who, What, Why. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you'll join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it and help other people find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.